12 as we continue our study in through the Gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 12. <laughs> Goodbye, Janessa. <laughs> Luke chapter 12, we're going to uh, continue this study. Uh, We'll be looking at verses uh, 22 through 34 today. Uh, Some of you, we may hate to admit that it was 1988. It seems not that long ago, but it dated me that Bobby McFerrin wrote a Grammy-winning song called Don't Worry, Be Happy. Do you remember that little song? Okay, those of you who are, you're not going to nod your head because it tells you what era you're from. I didn't say you were old. I just said it tells you what era, era you are from. So Don't Worry, Be Happy it was a, it was a happy little, little song, but it, it always bothered me a little bit because because there's really no basis for such optimism. Don't worry, be happy. Don't... Why? What is the basis for such optimism? Why should I not worry? Why should I be, be happy? But as a believer, as a follower of Christ, we can kind of modify that song a little bit and say, don't worry, trust God. And that is not a blind... That is not a leap into blind optimism. Don't worry, be happy is blind optimism. Don't worry, trust God has a firm foundation. It is not a giant leap of faith into some superficial optimism, but it is actually well grounded in the person and nature of the God who has made us. And so as we continue our study in in Luke, let me uh, bring everybody up up to speed as to where we're at. And first of all, we need to go way, way back and remind ourselves that the reason why Luke is even writing this gospel. Don't worry, I'm not going to start from chapter 1, verse 1. But I do want to, to remind us of Luke's purpose. And, and he wrote to a guy by the name of Theophilus. And he said that you may be certain. I, I've carefully researched all of these things. And I want you to know that you can be certain about the things that you have been taught that you can be certain that the truths that are conveyed in Scripture, um, that the, the truths that he had been taught, he can be certain about. And I think that's important because sometimes as believers, I don't know about you, but every once in a while I need a little bit of assurance. Every once in a while we have to wonder, you know, is this even worth it? Is it true? Are the truths that are conveyed in Scripture something that I can consistently base my life upon? Especially when there are so many influential voices pushing us away from a a biblical worldview. They are providing different alternatives for for a basis for our life. And, And not only that, but the words of Jesus often are counter to my experience. In other words, Jesus tells us that if you want to be my disciple, you must die to your you must die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow after me and die to yourself. It's like that's just completely counter to what's inside of me. 
And every voice around me is saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you ought to live for yourself. I'd indulge your desires. And sometimes we simply just need to be reassured. That's one of the reasons why we gather together and we sing God's praise, we pray God's prayers, we read God's scriptures, and we hear um, messages that expound God's truths. So Luke is writing that, that Theophilus may be assured or so that he might be certain about the things that he has been taught. And I pray that this day what we hear will help assure you and give you certainty about the things that we have been taught. Jesus um, has been instructing the disciples regarding their relationship with possessions. I told you last week that where, uh, in the parable of the rich fool that, that, that Jesus is teaching his disciples. Remember, really since Peter's confession in chapter 9, all the way up till now, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the time when he leaves them, goes away, is crucified, resurrected, and ascends into heaven. And they're going to pick up the ministry of Christ. And he's teaching them, this is how you as disciples are to live. And folks, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And this helps us learn how ought we then to live in light of the truths of Jesus Christ. And so he's instructed the disciples, he's now instructing the disciples um, what their relationship is to the things that they possess, the things they own, uh, material possessions, wealth. What is the disciples' relationship to those things? And, and, and last week, in the parable of the rich fool, he taught them what not to do. All right, and you can go back and listen to that. We've got notes on that. But he's instructed the, the, the disciples, this is what you don't do. And the rich fool had placed all of his confidence and all of his trust in his wealth and in his possessions, and he did not rely upon the Lord. And so that was his instruction of what not to do. So as we go forward, just a quick preview, this is where we're going to go. Jesus is going to provide the positive side of the disciples' relationship with their possessions. In other words, he's going to tell them what to do. So last week, this is what not to do. This week, this is what a disciple does with his possessions. So with that, let's go ahead and follow along with me as we read in uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. This is God's inerrant word. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Oh, of how much, value, how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. 
For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And this concludes the reading of God's word. Well, Jesus begins this kind of second part of his um, homily on the relationship between disciples and their possessions. And he begins this with, with an exhortation. And the exhortation is this. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or about your body. And he repeats this then in verse 29. Don't be worried. So, Jesus begins this exhortation to his disciples, to you, to, to this group that is, is following him, by, by extension to, to you and to me, don't worry. Live anxiety free. Don't worry about food and clothing. And I'm glad that he brought up the idea of food and clothing because food and clothing are substantive matters. He didn't say don't worry about trinkets or non-essentials. But don't worry about things. I mean, I'm sorry, food and clothing are important. Even important things like that, I'm telling you, you don't need to have anxiety about them. Don't be anxious about them. Well, he then goes on and gives three reasons why we are not to be anxious or uh, have worry about these substantive matters. And I'm glad he does that because a, a lot of times people come along and just say, don't do this and then leave. Don't do this. And now Jesus is going to give, you, give us three reasons why his command actually makes sense. He could say, because I'm God. But instead, he gives us three reasons that I think are very practical. And the first one we see is this. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Reason number one, life is more than food or clothing. The key thing in life is not about things, even important things. The key thing in life is that life isn't about food and clothing. It's, it's, it's much more weightier than that. Even though food and clothing are important, life is even, there are more important things than even those important things. And, and primarily being rightly related to one's creator is ultimate. If you're well-fed and nicely clothed, but you are estranged from your God, you are missing the main thing. This was the error of the rich fool. He had good clothes and he had plenty of food, but he was estranged from his Creator. He was living as though there were no God, and God said, you fool. In other words, don't worry about food and clothing. Let eternal matters take priority over temporal matters. So the first one, first reason, life consists of much more than food and clothing. There are eternal things that are way more important than temporal things. Second, verses 25 and 26. This one's very practical. Worry just doesn't help. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, which I find interesting. Adding an hour to your life, he considers a small thing. 
If you can't even do that, why would you worry about big things? In other words, worry doesn't help. Worry does not change reality, and it is therefore useless. The outcome is the same if you worry or don't. You can worry all you want, but it's not going to affect the outcome of that which you are worrying about. So it's useless, so don't worry. I read a statistic somewhere, and I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top. I, I, I believe that the percentage was 80% of the things we worry about never happen. So we worry about stuff, and 80% of the time it's just useless. It never happened in the first place. Not as though worrying about the other 20% actually fixed the problem. It still happened, even though you worried. So it's useless to worry. It's either not going to happen or it is going to happen, but it's not going to, your worry won't affect the outcome one way or the other. So what are we getting all stressed out about? Worry will not add one hour to your life. Again, remember the rich fool. He thought, I've got, I've got stuff stored up for years to come, I'm going to sit back, eat, drink, and be married. And that very night, his soul was required of him. He worried about his future. He made provisions for it. And then he had no control over the day of, of his death. So, number two, worry doesn't help. Number three is a little bit more theological. The first two are very practical. Third one in verse 30, your father knows your needs. For For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows you need them. So do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. The nations of the world seek those things. Your father knows that you need them. The first thing we should should note about this is that this statement, your father, those rightly related to God should understand that they have God as their father. And if you are rightly related to God and he is your father, worry is inconsistent with that truth. Worry acts as though God is not our father, or perhaps even worse, that God is an uncaring father. But which of you would, which of you children would would ask, uh, which which son will ask his father for a fish, and his father will give him a serpent? And if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more your heavenly Father? So if your Father in heaven knows that you need these things, why are you acting as though He is either uncaring or non-existent? That just doesn't make sense. And it is an affront to the God who has adopted you into his family. So worry acts as though God is not our father or that God is uncaring. I mean, all of our, many, most of our songs today, we boldly say how great is our God. We talked about the great God. Look at your bulletin. All those songs are, look how great God is. And then we turn around and say, I don't know, is he going to deliver for me this time? I'm going to worry. What are we singing songs for? Why are we affirming the greatness of God when in actuality we, we wonder? God is great. That is the truth. God is awesome in power. 
His grace is abundant. And then we worry. Jesus is saying, well, why would you worry about such things? Don't you know who God is? Now, he brings up this idea, the nations of the world seek after these things. Those without a relationship with God worry about such things, but you're not part of them. Why are you living like people who don't know God? People who don't know God worry about where everything's going to come from. And so why are you living like them? Don't you realize you're, you're, you've been adopted into the family of God? You've been saved by His grace through faith, through the merits of Christ alone, and now you're worried whether or not God can, can meet your needs? This is how unbelievers, this is how pagans live. What are you doing living like them? Why are you adopting their attitude? The world without God lives in anxiety. In Jesus' day, many of the, the Roman gods, these pagan gods, they were selfish and they were capricious and you never knew exactly what they were going to do and they certainly did not have mankind as a concern in their hearts and in their minds. This was the, the false religions of the day. And Jesus is saying, but your heavenly Father is not like those false gods. Your God is completely different. Why would you live like a, as though you're living with those pagan gods. That makes absolutely no sense. We are not to live as our unbelieving neighbors who, spiritually speaking, are orphans. There should be a distinct difference between the believer and the non-believer in regards to his possessions. I believe Scripture commends hard work, but anxiety about money is not commended. Well, scripture commends hard work, but it does not commend anxiety about possessions. So when we are consumed with the world's attitudes towards material things, we forget who our Heavenly Father is. So you can see Jesus begins this, this message, this, this exhortation on how the disciple lives with his possessions, and he says, don't fear. And I'm going to give you three good reasons why you ought not to fear. Number one, um, Eternal things are way more important than, than those other things. Number two, it's not going to help you. And the bottom line is your father knows that you need these things. Jesus then goes on and begins to illustrate a little bit about what he's just said. And, and he brings up three illustrations. And I'm just going to kind of combine them all together because they are essentially um, they're, they're very similar. And he brings up, look at the ravens. Um, consider the ravens. Consider the grass. Consider the flowers of the field. Think about those things. And it's interesting that, that um, Jesus brings up this idea, look at the ravens. We, we should note that ravens were, were a lowly, were, were considered lowly. They were unclean. And I guess the point would be that if God so provides for such lowly creatures, how much more will he take care of you? I mean, if he takes care of ravens and they're an unclean animal and considered ignoble by the community he's speaking to, and if God takes care of them, won't he take care of you? Aren't you more valuable than a raven? Aren't you more valuable than birds? I love the question. I think Matthew brings it up. He says, um, how many sparrows are you worth? Really, how many sparrows are you worth? 
this should not be an exhortation to idleness. In other words, well, I can just sit back, God feeds the ravens, and he'll feed me as well. This is not an exhortation to idleness because labor is the means by which we provide for our families. Ravens are not an example of idleness, but they are an example of freedom from anxiety. In other words, the the raven goes out and gets his food and builds his nest and gets the materials for all of those things. He just doesn't, Jesus' point is, he just doesn't worry. He knows those things will be provided. He still works hard. He just doesn't worry. That's the idea. And then Jesus brings up this idea of grass and flowers. Uh, This should be very relevant to us in a desert area, as Jesus was preaching in a desert area. One of the most beautiful times of the year, uh, especially in the desert, is in the spring, especially after a time of heavy rain, because the wildflowers come out. The drive to Phoenix is spectacular, isn't it? In the spring, after a good winter, I know Simone and I, we drive down and we're going, oh, the yellow flowers are out now. That's cool. I wonder when we're going to see the purple ones. Oh, the purple ones are out today. I hope today the red ones are out. And so we, we, we see the, 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 the desert begin to bloom. I remember years ago after a particularly wet winter, uh, Simone and I were hiking in the Superstition Mountains, and it was just spectacular as far as you could see. It was gold and yellow and purple and red and blue and you needed sunglasses not because of the sun but because of how bright the mountains were how vibrant the fields were and it was just a beautiful beautiful day of hiking out there the window was short because about a week later maybe two weeks later that was all gone Drive down to Phoenix and you say, oh, it's so beautiful. And then a couple weeks later and it's all brown and dead. And then somebody flicks a cigarette out the window and it all burns up. So if God cares about insignificant things such as flowers and grass that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more does he care for you? That's the point. He cares for lowly things like birds and he cares for um, disposable things or insignificant things like flowers and grass. And then we worry, gosh, I wonder if he's going to take care of me. How much more valuable are you to him than birds and grass? What is your value? And this is what becomes a very important aspect for the believer. What is my value to the Lord? Because we tend generally uh, swing from two extremes. We, we tend to swing from, oh, I am a nothing, zero worm wretch to I am God. I am exalted. I am the most important thing in the universe. In fact, I'm the center of the universe. In fact, everything in the universe revolves around me. Well, Scripture seems to have a little bit of both. On the one hand, yes, we have sinned and we could say that we are worms and wretches. I think we're going to sing a song. That, or we just sang a song that saved a wretch like me. There's a place for that. We should recognize where we stand. But on the other hand, we are also the pinnacle of God's creation. Psalm chapter 8 talks about the glories of the heavens. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he asks, and so who is man that you would take thought of him? It's a 
I'm seeing the beauties of everything around me, and then so who am I that you would even think of me? And then it's replied with, he made you just a little lower than God. Wow. He made you in his image. You are created in the image of God. So what is your value? And so we need to have a strong understanding of biblical truth about mankind, that you, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. And, and this is so highly undermined today where man is the cause of every environmental problem and everything is the problem because of man. Uh, Ingrid Newkirk, I've probably mentioned this before, she's the founder of PETA, and her famous quote is this, a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. Do you see? A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. There is no difference between rats and boys, pigs and girls, dogs and men and women. No difference whatsoever. They're all the same. She would, one of her co-workers would go on and say the slaughter of six million broiler children chickens is equivalent to the slaughter of six million people in Nazi ovens. Do you see that if we do not have a strong understanding of who we are as God's creation, we might say, I have no value. I am not here to deify you or make you the center of the universe, but I am here to assure you of how much more value are you than a bird or a blade of grass. I believe that the value of hum humankind can be attested by in the incarnation. For what bird and what flower did God leave his glory and put on flesh and dwell amongst them? Did God ever become a blade of grass and live amongst the grass? And did God ever become a dog or a cat or a rat or a pig? And live amongst them and die for their sins and raise again and, come and promise to come back and bring them to where he is. Of what animal and what flower did he ever do that? Of how much more value are you than a blade of grass or a bird in the air? God seeks after fallen humanity. Adam, where are you? And he sought after you. If you are here today and you are in Christ, you are in Christ because God came after you. He found you like, like he found Adam who was hiding from him, wanting nothing to do with God. And God chased after Adam, found him. And God chased after you and found you. And brought you to himself. A rebel brought you into his kingdom, made you a citizen of his kingdom, adopted you into his family, and made you an heir of all things. How much more value are you? And you're worried? We're worried? I'm worried? I'm worried about tomorrow, what I'm going to eat or drink, or what the, the tomorrow's struggle is going to bring? Really? Which is probably why he follows up that with this mild rebuke, you of little faith. You might say, yeah, I have little faith. How do I have bigger faith? 
Sometimes we try to muster up more faith and we just, I'm going to really, really, really believe now. Determined this time. I'm really going to have faith. Just watch me. And then we fail. I think the foundation of great faith is not in faith, but in God. So the foundation of great faith is to make much of God. When God is big, mustard seed faith moves mountains. You don't need big faith, you need a big God. So let's exalt God, let's learn about who God is, let's declare His goodness and mercy, let's learn how great God is, and then even if we have little faith, mustard seed faith, oh my goodness. So, let it not be said of us, you little faiths. So the remedy, so that he rebukes his disciples, you have little faith. And then he comes back with a second exhortation. The first exhortation is don't worry. The second exhortation is seek first the kingdom of God. Instead, seek his kingdom. These things will be added to you. Matthew says seek first. I find that interesting as, as, as a matter of priority. So in our day, seek first God's kingdom. We should also note that there is a, um, an element here of this has the idea of a habitual seeking. So always be seeking, habitually seek God and his kingdom. It is a habitual pursuit of God's rule. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, perhaps we can simplify it by saying it is the prioritizing of the things of God. That is, we live under his lordship every single day and in every area of our life. The kingdom of God is that he rules over you and me and we live in his, under his authority and we prioritize his concerns over everything else. That is, we live under his lordship every day and in every area of our lives. In other words, God's kingdom is not, and and God himself is not a slice of our lives that's acted out on Sunday mornings and then forgotten on Monday through Friday, but rather he is the center of everything we say and do 24-7. He is first prioritized in all that we say and do. This doesn't mean that you don't go to work. This doesn't mean that you have to become a missionary or a preacher or a pastor or anything like that. It just means that when we wake up, we are ready to do what God has called us to do, even when it seems so unnatural. We will love our neighbor as ourselves. We will seek him for forgiveness. We will love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We will forgive as we have been forgiven. This, then, is our priority. And then look at this wonderful promise, this incredible assurance. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is pleased to give his kingdom to his children. And I have to admit, I, I wrestled a bit with, uh, with what to do with that. And then I remembered a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I think is in your notes, that I think is significant. Lewis writes, Our problem is not that we want too much, but that we are satisfied with too little. What a great thought. Our problem is not that we want too much, but that we are satisfied with too little. We've set our sights way too low. 
God is pleased to give his kingdom to you. And, and we're worried about trifling things like food and clothing. But God says, I'm ready to give you my kingdom. And not only that, I'm pleased. This is a joyful thing. This is what I want to do. I'm not begrudging to do it because I have to or you twisted my arm. This is what brings God joy. I want to give you my kingdom. And we've set our sights way too low. We want a new house and God says, I've got a kingdom. We want a new position in our jobs and God says, I've got a kingdom for you. We want a better reputation and God says, I'm going to give you my kingdom. We want a better, more improved spouse and God says, I'm going to give you my kingdom. He wants to. Our hearts are set on what will not satisfy while our Heavenly Father is pleased to give us His kingdom. The problem is we are asking for and wanting. Our desires are much too small, they're much too temporal. It's not that we want too much that we're just satisfied with too little. I'd be satisfied with a new house. I'd be satisfied with a new position. I'd be satisfied. And God says, I want to give you my kingdom. So seek the kingdom. And that other stuff gets added. Prioritize the kingdom of God. And then Jesus Continues on, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money, uh, with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. This is certainly can be a challenging passage of text, especially to uh, relatively wealthy, um, well, I shouldn't say relatively amongst a very wealthy um, group of folks. I should note that as we consider this idea through the entire corpus of Scripture, we would note that ownership of property is not condemned in the New Testament, but remember that this is a passage combating covetousness. I think the idea here is, uh, so we see, we see ownership Material ownership throughout the Bible. I mean, remember where the early, after they got kicked out of the synagogue and the temple, where did the early church meet? In homes. So that kind of implies somebody has a home. I don't know, that, maybe that's a big stretch, but for me it seems to make sense. I'm a pretty simple guy. Of course, we consider Ananias and Sapphira. It wasn't the fact that they didn't sell everything they had, but they kept back and they lied about what they were giving. In fact, Peter goes on and says, when you had these things, it was yours to use as you wanted. But, I would say this, the disciples, the relationship with between the disciple and his possession would be that of generosity. We are to be generous with what we have and not to worry about what we don't have. I think that's the problem. We, we often worry about what I don't have and God has said, I've already been generous with you, now be generous to others. And you can say, but I don't have as much as so-and-so. And I don't have as much, and they, don't, they probably say, I don't, I don't have as much as the, this person and none of us have as much as Warren Buffett or somebody like that. What do, has God blessed you with? 
Because I look around this room and I know that God has blessed all of us abundantly. I'm not saying that we don't have our trials and struggles and financial issues and maybe you're going through a time that is especially difficult. Well, praise God, because there's a church. Maybe we can help you. That maybe while you're really struggling, there's a whole bunch of other abundance around and us is like, well, maybe we can we can be generous. Pursuit of the kingdom then is to care for others. And, and when we are generous with others, it does a couple of things. First of all, it reminds us of God's provision for us. In other words, we have a lot of extra. So, so when we are generous with what God has given us, it reminds us that, man, I, I have extra. I'm not living day to day. This is one of the benefits of fasting. Reminds us then that I'm just doing without and it's voluntary. But it reminds me that there are many people for whom fasting is not a voluntary matter. That's just their existence, that's their day to day life. So when we fast, we are reminded of all the food that God has given to us, and we are doing this out of a voluntary, um, it's a voluntary act. But when you feel those hunger pains, remember, that's the norm for many people. And it should make us be compassionate. Look at I opened my refrigerator and I said the other day, I'm like, when I open my refrigerator, I'm going, man, we got a lot of stuff. We should learn to be generous. So when we give, it reminds that we have extra. It's also a reminder that stuff doesn't bring us joy. No matter what we tell ourselves, stuff doesn't bring us joy. And so the idea then is to hold our stuff loosely. It doesn't mean, I don't think it's saying that you can't have stuff. It just means hold it with an open hand. Because your heart will follow your treasure. So when we invest in eternal things, our heart will tend to be where our treasure is. I mean, some people may check their investments every day, see how their bank account is doing. I'm not belittling that. I'm just simply saying that we check up on things that are valuable. We keep safe those things that are valuable. We put expensive things in safes because we want to protect them. This is just saying. Where your, where your treasure is, there will be your heart as well. So, we'll close with just a few points and principles. We need to recall that this lesson began actually last week in, in chapter 13. And it began with a warning against covetousness. Covetousness is a matter of the heart. And don't be desirous of things that aren't yours. And be satisfied as God has with the, the great things that God has given you. The bottom line is this. Life is more than material things. Life has everything to do with a relationship with God. And I would have to ask, if you have never called upon the name of the Lord, um, well, what's stopping you? God says, I, I'd be happy to be your heavenly, I, I am your heavenly, I am your creator, whether you like it or not. 
sin has separated us from one another. And here's the deal. If you'll confess your sins and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that He has died in your place for your sins, I'll forgive you, bring you into my kingdom, make you, adopt you into my family and make you an heir of all things. And I will be your father and you don't need to worry about all sorts of stuff because I got it. So I'd like to invite you today, if you are not a follower of Christ today, if you have never called upon the name of the Lord, confessed your sins, um, and been forgiven of your sins, this would be... Why not today? This would be a great day to do that. And I guess the, the final thing is this. We don't live a life of don't worry, be happy, but we do live a life of don't worry, trust God, He's your Father, He knows what you need, and He's more than capable of doing everything you need. How much of much greater value are you than anything else that He has created? Let's pray.